You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Uh, today, I'm really excited to be joined with someone that I've been wanting to talk to for quite some time, uh, Justin Fischetic. Um, he's an awesome natural products researcher, and um, I believe you were just awarded the El Soli Award, were you not, for 2020? <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's exciting. Thanks so much, Justin, for being willing to come on the podcast and talk to me about uh, terpenes and whatever else we get into. Yeah, thanks for having me. Totally. Um, so to start our listeners off, do you mind explaining a little bit about um, the work that you've been doing over the past several years and kind of how you got into studying terpenoids and natural products? And, and then we'll kind of launch off from there. Um, yeah, I guess the last few years, I've mainly been working in cannabis testing laboratories in California. Um, and now I'm mainly working in a contract research organization that deals with mostly pharmaceutical stuff. But um, yeah, I got into cannabis research when I was doing my master's degree um, at Leiden University, which is in the Netherlands. And there was a project going, it was, the laboratory is mainly focused on, um, yeah, the, either the discovery of natural products, so biologically active compounds from plants, also how to produce these compounds using like biotechnology and stuff. But the lab I worked in had a project on cannabis going on, which was going on with a few different universities in the Netherlands at the time. Uh, I believe this was around 2000 seven eight ish um yeah so the project was basically studying different aspects of cannabis um so in the netherlands their system is a bit different than what we mm -hmm. have in the u.s right now um at the time and i think this is still the case there's really only one producer of medicinal cannabis in the netherlands that's sanctioned by the government um but all the other you know, the coffee shop stuff is still like the supply is illegal and the sale is tolerated. But anyway, so <laughs> we were basically kind of, as this kind of medicinal cannabis program got off the ground, they wanted to study it more. Um, so the project really involved purifying different compounds from cannabis and studying their activity, developing different like drug formulations for cannabinoids. Um, yeah. And a big part of it was studying how to produce the cannabis plant in a way that could be used as a medicine. Because you get you get through pharmacies there. So yeah. it like, comes in a little pill kind of container and it's um, the concentration of like THC or CBD is pretty tightly regulated. Mm -hmm. They have to be within like a certain uh, plus or minus whatever the percent is for each strain that they use cultivar whatever you really yeah. want to call it um so anyway that was a big part of the work that we did was collaborate with the people producing the cannabis to see what's in it um can they grow it in a way where the active ingredients are stable so when i started working on it originally i was developing some tlc so some thin layer chromatography methods yep and then I was working with somebody who wanted to like make some TLC test kits or something. And they approached the university about it. And 
you know, the guy was really interested in this concept that like different ratios of different cannabinoids really play a role in their effects. Right. So, you know, we knew about THC, CBD was known then. I mean, it's not, wasn't as popular as it is now. Um, so they, there was some kind of research on that too, the combination of the two compounds. But, you know, everyone was kind of interested in this question, why does different types of cannabis have seemed to have different effects? Um, but when you went and like analyzed a bunch of cannabis like available in co coffee shops, most of them are just pretty much THC. Yeah. Um, when you look at their cannabinoid content, um, the Dutch government at the time had a high THC strain you can get through the pharmacies. You could get um, like a CBD THC strain that was similar ratio. And I believe they had a lower THC strain, which was like 10%. The other one was like 20. Gotcha. So they really only had a few strains available, but clearly there's like a lot of chemical diversity out there. And you know, just based on the smell and stuff. But anyway, so like, yeah, we were kind of looking at uh, the different cannabis. They didn't really seem like cannabinoid content explained the difference between most of these strains. Because the, right. uh, so I was like, I remember testing a bunch of samples during my master's degree that we had gotten from coffee shops. And yeah, they weren't really that different from each other. But clearly they like looked different, they smelled different, they were sold as different things. So we're like, oh, you know, maybe it's the terpene content that makes a difference. Um, mm -hmm. so we started analyzing that and we saw that there was quite a bit of differences. And one thing that we did with this research is the Dutch patients who were in this medical program, which was a small medical program at the time. And I think it was like under a thousand patients, uh, it's a smaller country and you know, right, right. Um, a lot of people were, if they were into cannabis already got it from coffee shops. So they had a smaller overall patient population. I don't know what it is now, but, um, so the, the Dutch government didn't really see a need to allow more strains into the, into the system. Mm -hmm. um, but then we kind of showed them like, look, there are these differences in the terpene profile and maybe patients have this preference or that preference. And, you know, we don't really know why. Um, so you should let them have some, a few more strains. And then they were convinced right. by that argument. So then they started allowing the, the licensed facility there to produce a few more different strains, um, which I'm sure was nice for some of the patients. But, um, but yeah, I guess the, yeah. So then we really like kind of studied how you could use the terpene profile to distinguish the different like strains that have similar cannabinoid content from each other. Right. Yeah. And that, that, that starts to get into, um, you know, one of the big concepts I wanted to talk to you about because I've, you know, I've read some of your um, papers that you've been involved with publishing about chemovars and the concept of a of a chemical variety um, as sort of a contrast to the concept of a cultivar, a cultivated variety. Um, and so it sounds like, you know, little by little, your work kind of evolved towards this um, sort of pursuit of understanding these these differences in chemical profiles and um do you mind explaining to listeners um because they've heard me mention the term chemovar before but i don't know that i've ever actually really thoroughly defined it do you mind describing what a chemovar is and how it's different than a cultivar and then um maybe we can talk a little bit about how that plays into taxonomy of cannabis yeah so my colleague made up the term <laughs> Uh, Arno Hazekamp, who is a, is a Dutch scientist yeah. who's done a lot of work with cannabis, he uh, 
when we were writing that paper, he just, you know, he kind of just made it up. Uh, but really another term that people would use is chemotype. Right. So like a plant, you know, every living thing has a genotype. So the, it's genetic makeup. You know, the other term that we commonly use is phenotype. So what does it look like? Mm-hmm. And then a chemotype is just what chemicals are, are being produced by it. You know, so that's obviously like, it is a kind of phenotype, right. which is dependent on genotype and, and environmental factors, you know, stuff like that. Um, so he just liked the word chemovar more than chemotype. That's really all it is. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the word cultivar is like, you know, any kind of, I forget the exact definition, but like a type, you know, it's like a strain isn't really a good term for cannabis. Right. Cultivars. Yeah. A strain is really more something used in like microbiology, like different strains exactly. of bacteria and stuff. So cultivar is a better term, but I guess the hard part about saying cultivar in the cannabis industry is like cultivars are usually established and like well-recognized varieties of plants that are cultivated. Mm-hmm. Um, and cannabis doesn't really have that in the same way. I mean, there, there are types of, for example, hemp that are well-defined, um, but like most of the drug type cannabis, so the high THC cannabis isn't really defined in any sort of agreed upon way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's really all we meant by that. Um, and the main ingredients that, you know, are obviously the cannabinoids and the terpenes are really just the main flavor ingredients. Um, so. Yep. We kind of liked using that as a as like a systematic way to tell the difference because like when you see a plant in a store or at a pharmacy or whatever or a dispensary, um, you don't know what it looked like when it was growing, so we couldn't really say much about the phenotype in that in that regard. So another way of classifying it is based on the chemical profile. If you're going to use it for medicine, that's the, the way that makes the most sense, right? Because you have to regulate the um, the active ingredients. Yeah, and and how how did some of your research looking into the chemical profiles of uh, of different cultivars of cannabis? How did that tie into this discussion about taxonomy and how to actually categorize um, different varieties? Did you notice certain trends, certain groupings um, that uh, were interesting to you? Uh you mean like, so like in the Netherlands or now or both? <laughs> uh, both, both. Yeah. So there, you know, it's like, I mean, you could just smell that certain types smell way different than each other. Right. So of course. Um, and I guess, you know, everybody was kind of curious about this whole sativa indica thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so we were just kind of curious on like, you know, is there anything to that? Is it just people's, you know, biases or whatever? Um, so, yeah, I mean, we did notice that there was these distinct, like, for example, the the main Dutch strain that was available in the pharmacies, the high THC one, was like a, a strain that's very similar in terpene profile to like Jack Carrera, which is a pretty common strain or cultivar. Right. Um, and, you know, those are typically described as, sativa strains or sativa dominant strains mm-hmm. i mean they're they're all probably hybrids um, yeah yeah but they're they they look more sativa like 
um, whether that means that chemical profile came from sativa lineage, I mean, nobody, I don't have an answer to that, but, um, and then we wanted to like contrast that with like uh, what were typically considered indica strains. So the, the, the cultivator, I think in the first study we did on this sent us, I think it was like 11 different strains. I didn't know what any of them were, but then there were clearly ones that were like uh, dominant in other terpenes. So we're like, okay, these are definitely some different groups. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, when you were doing some of that research, cause you know, it's it's known that there are, there are hundreds of terpenes that that appear in, in cannabis, and so how did you kind of select which ones to focus on? Did you just go by um, you know kind of overall concentration that you were seeing um, among all these varieties and pick some of the the ones that were um, kind of more concentrated than others? Because um, it'd be pretty difficult to study all of them. Yeah, it's a good question. Um... Yeah, I mean, I guess really like even before we started really with the classification side of things, we were studying like, um, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but it'll lead back into your question. Sure, yeah, totally. Uh, we were studying like the smoke and the vapor of cannabis. Mm, yeah. So like we were right. comparing vaporizers because like we were trying to study some other administration forms because um, people want to inhale cannabis. It's a good way to get it in your system, but smoking, you know, creates all kinds of toxic chemicals. So, yep. you know, from a pharmacy perspective and like a medicinal perspective, we're exploring some other alternatives. And, you know, we're studying a vaporizer that heats the plant material to make vapor, not, not like an electronic cigarette or anything like that. Um, and, the, you know, that was, it was pretty clear that the main compounds were terpenes and cannabinoids. That's pretty much what the vapor is composed of and like water vapor and stuff. But, um, mm-hmm some other volatiles but so that's why we like honed in on on the terpenes because uh i mean even if you you know you can think about you know they could be irritants for some people it could right. you know, i mean whether they have medicinal effects is another question we can get into later but um but yeah then we basically were like all right so these are the major compounds we're seeing in the vapor let's go look at them in the different cultivars we have access to and really, like the, where we started was just running the different cultivars on GC. So uh, mm-hmm. using gas chromatography. And you can clearly see that there are some major terpenes. Really, like if you, depending on how concentrated you make your sample, mm-hmm. really like 20 to 40 terpenes that you see commonly. Yeah. Um, you know, where this number of 100 comes from is also some of the earlier papers where they studied cannabis terpenes, you basically distilled the terpenes out of the plant first. Exactly. Using steam distillation yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. And then you end up with a very concentrated preparation that's pretty much mostly terpenes. So if you analyze something like that, you're going to see a, few, a couple hundred mm-hmm. compounds. Um, most of are monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes. Um, so that's really where that number comes from. But like, as far as what you'll see when you analyze a plant, it's more like 20 to 40. There are more there, but there are much mm-hmm. lower concentrations. Um, so you would need to use some, there are ways of analyzing them, but you know, generally for like routine purposes, 20 to 40 compounds is what matters. Um, yeah. 
And so the big thing in the beginning was, yeah, I mean, some of them like are really obvious compact. Like the way we started, it was really looking at everything by GC with MassSpec. And we had mm -hmm. a library of essential oils and different terpene reference material at the lab I worked in because uh, they had studied essential oils and terpenes for you know decades yeah um, so they you know we had access to a lot of reference material which was nice because you couldn't really buy these convenient terpene mixes that you can now so anyway we just like systematically built it up the library and then analyzed and then we you know just developed a quantitative method and went from there yeah and um can you speak a little bit to i mean were there any challenges that you ran into in um analyzing the i know you looked at vapor did you also look at smoke as well as far as looking at um what compounds were in there and can you explain a little bit of how that that kind of research is done um yeah it's kind of funny um yeah we uh, quite literally um would take joints and <laughs> burn them yeah with a pump that would suck the smoke into a solvent which was kind of <laughs> somewhat uh i mean it was in a fume hood and whatever and we had a trap before it went into the solvent but like you know we never started any fires doing that but yeah we, we had <laughs> students uh, whose job it was to basically light the joint and have the, the pump was on a timer and the pump would right. like imitate somebody inhaling for a certain period of time and Mm -hmm. We just collect that, that's the vapor into the solvent or the smoke into the solvent and analyze that. And it was the same for the vapor, except we used the uh, vaporizer with the bag. Uh, the oh, volcano the volcano. Was, yeah, that yeah. was the brand. That was like one of the only high-end ones that was available right. at the time. Um, so yeah, we used that and we collected the vapor and analyzed it. Uh, smoke is really complex, obviously. Mm -hmm. There's thousands and thousands of compounds in smoke, and you, you can't analyze them all necessarily just using GC. Uh, but cannabis smoke has been well characterized in the past, mainly to like show how dangerous it could be. But, um, right. but it, like burning any plant material, you're going to make lots of toxic compounds. So yeah, exactly. But yeah, we we worry. You know, there are still terpenes in cannabis smoke. Um, I'm sure there are all kinds of side reactions that happen with them, but we couldn't identify all that stuff. It wasn't really worth our effort. Um, but there, that also happens with the cannabinoids too. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of side reactions that happen and all kinds of new cannabinoids are formed. But for the most part, it's still the major ingredient, THC. Um, so yeah, the vapor, basically like if you make an ethanol extract and analyze it, or you just take flower bud, put it in alcohol and analyze it by GC, it's the mm -hmm. same stuff you would see in the vapor. Pretty much. Yeah, that's 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 actually pretty interesting. I, I you know I don't know if that's intuitive or counterintuitive, but um, you know something I've um, always taught folks when I'm doing um, seminars or workshops or something is that you know it's it's interesting to know the chemical composition of a cannabis product, um, but when obviously when you're smoking it, you're being exposed to a totally different um not totally different but a a very uh different chemical profile than what you know uh, a lot of common cannabis testing labs are are going to give you data for for the the raw material um and that's mm -hmm. something that that a lot of people don't necessarily think about intuitively that there that there are you know these 
sometimes pretty substantial chemical changes that happen, um, you know, when you're burning something and, and even when you're vaporizing. And one thing I was going to ask you is, um, did you glean any wisdom about um, temperature differences? Like when you were vaporizing, do you remember what, what temperature you were using um, to do that? And at, at what point do you know, like at what point you start to see some of those like um, pyrolyzation products and, and other novel products that start coming through with, with higher temperatures? Um, I think the one I settled on, my colleague had studied the different temperatures. I mean, we could only mm -hmm. go as high as the device went, which I think was like 240 right. Celsius. Um, yeah. And I settled on 200 Celsius for the, the study I did. Okay. Um, but yeah, basically at, at 200 Celsius, you're not seeing really any pyrolysis. Okay. I think you'd have to go well beyond 250 to start seeing that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And as something I've wondered, I'm sure there's data out there, but I've wondered about all of these vape pens and everything, what temperatures they're um, heating up to. I know it can be wide, uh, widely varied, um, but yeah, it seems like, issue. yeah, it seems like there's more pyrolyzation happening in those devices than there were when people were, um, you know, years ago using volcanoes and, and, and everything. Um, yeah, there's a big difference between electronic cigarettes and, um, true vaporizers right and, and, right and the, the issue about what you're inhaling versus what's in it <laughs> right is, yeah it's becoming a big deal now obviously with the news going on with exactly kind of yeah yeah i think now the count is at estimated like 13 deaths um associated with with vaping and trying to figure that out i saw um one study found that a lot of these it's not something to laugh about but um they're finding microbutanol in a lot of these black market um, products that, you know, when you heat it up, turns to hydrogen cyanide. And obviously there's the vitamin E acetate issue and trying to nail down what's actually going on. Um, something I always point out is, you know, um, it's not great to heat up lipids and inhale them in the first place. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> and pyrol, you know, these kind of side reactions can also happen uh, with terpenes at high temperatures. Um they can form different kinds of irritants and potential carcinogens as well. Yeah, that, that was actually something I was going to ask you about. If you knew um, any specific um, byproducts that result from heating terpenes. And uh, this also stems from, um, had someone show me very recently a video on Instagram that um, kind of disturbed me a little bit where people were, um, they were dabbing pure cannabis terpenes at high temperatures and I was just like imagining, I was like, I mean, benzene has to be an issue. Um, and I'm sure there are other things. Do you know any specific um, byproducts from pyrolyzing terpenes? Um, there was, there was a study from a group in Oregon, um, forgetting exactly which university there, but they did look into um, dabbing terpenes. Um, mainly, I think they did this with pure terpenes, maybe some essential oils. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, the benzene was one of the side re reactions. There was another one that was more um, kind of an irritating compound. I, I don't remember what it is exactly. Yeah. But yeah, so that, that's really the only study that's looked into that aspect of it. But um, when it comes to these vape pens, yeah, that is something that's um, not well researched about what what's actually coming into the vapor. I mean, there's been a little bit of work on that with um, electronic cigarettes for nicotine, but now that's right. obviously going to become a big issue with cannabis extracts and stuff as well. 
And are you aware of, has there been much health and safety research done on the inhalation of terpenes broadly? Um, I'm not aware of much. Well, I mean, aromatherapy is all about right. inhaling essential oils. Um, it doesn't really seem to be too much harm in that. Um, so yeah, I mean, essential oils at relatively low concentrations are probably totally fine for the most part. I mean, some people have allergies to them and can develop sure, sensitivities. Yeah. Um, and obviously when you really start inhaling large amounts of this stuff, then that becomes more of an open question. But yeah, there are, there are studies administering larger doses of terpenes to people uh, to treat, you know, like more like topical infections and stuff like that, or maybe sure, some lung yeah. tissue stuff as well. And ingesting them in relatively small quantities isn't such a big deal either. But I mean, when I'm saying terpenes, I'm meaning the kind of common monoterpenes and sesquiterpenes that are right, exactly. in cannabis and other plants. Um, I mean, terpenes is a huge group of, of compounds. Some which are very poisonous. <laughs> right. Yeah. You can get in these, these, they get bigger and bigger and bigger and more, yeah, more and more fascinating. There's a, a, yeah, we haven't even talked about like triterpenes that you'd find commonly in like the roots and, um, and it just spirals out from there. A lot of people don't realize like rubber, I mean, in its pure form, it's just basically a huge long isoprene chain. Yeah. Um, um, which I don't know. That's, kind of neat to think about <laughs> that sure. um that that's you know really technically a terpene too um to back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the function of of terpenes in plants how would you characterize and obviously you know like you just said terpenes are a huge class of compounds they surely do a lot of different things um but i know um from reading some of your work that you've studied some of this, what are some of the ways that plants use terpenes? Hmm. Yeah, that's a big question. I yeah. Can be answered yeah. in a few different ways, but yeah. So if we think about, let's, let's just narrow it a little bit for a moment and focus sure. on the, the, like the kind of terpenes that are commonly found in essential oils. So like really the aromatic kind of terpenes which mainly would be sesquiterpenes and monoterpenes. And the difference being monoterpenes have 10 carbons and sesquiterpenes have 15. Mm -hmm. And they're built from, as you said before, like isoprene building blocks, which are made of five carbons. So a monoterpene has two, sesquiterpene has three of those building blocks. Yeah. So yeah, usually terpenes are incremented in, and classified in terms of these five carbon building blocks. Um, and yeah, ones that have 10 or 15 carbons, uh, so the mono and sesquiterpenes tend to be quite a little bit volatile, so you can mm -hmm. that's why you can smell them. Right. Um, so plants tend to make, I mean, it's, it's, you know, every different plant, and there's going to be a lot of specific evolutionary reasons, but um, in general, these things are for either defense, mm -hmm. um, to either defend against, you know, herbivores or whatever to attract different organisms to come to the plant, to either eat it or to pollinate it, like with bugs. Uh, you know, to repel things. I mean, there are plants that, that use like volatile compounds to like attract predators for pests that are attacking the plant. Mm -hmm. 
to like, uh, there are specific examples of this. I don't know if it was a terpene or another volatile compound that, that does that kind of thing. So there, there are a lot of these chemical ecological reasons, as signaling molecules, as repellents, as attractants. I would say that's the main reason plants make a lot of, not just terpenes, but um, a lot of what we call secondary metabolites. So that just means mm -hmm. compounds are kind of made outside of primary metabolism. Primary metabolism being like, making proteins, uh, mm -hmm. metabolizing sugars and fats and lipids, you know, and all those kinds right, of things. Right, the, the basic things. things that help the plant grow and stay alive. Yeah, and then, you know, it's the same in microorganisms and stuff like that. And, you know, so yeah, when we, you know, secondary metabolism is a very specific term, but it generally refers to these kind of extra compounds, which may mm -hmm. serve essential functions, but um, not always. But, the, you know, plants also make terpenes that are do serve essential functions in, you know, in just internal biochemistry and um, like building blocks of cell walls and stuff like that, or cell membranes, yeah. you know, sterols and stuff like that, waxes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's all kinds of different roles and people, of course, um, you know, have been using plants for food and medicine forever. Um, so not forever, but since for a long time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there. You know, the the thing that interested me in these compounds, well, is I mean, really, I just happen to work on projects that involve them. But um, the reason these projects existed was because there are some interesting biologically active compounds that are in the terpene class. Um, there are some famous examples like um, the drug Taxol, which comes from the Pacific yew tree, is a anti-cancer drug um, that's approved, and uh, it's pretty well-known example yeah. of this kind of thing. Uh, you know, you have salvinorians, which are from salvia divinorum, which are, you know, mm -hmm. potently psychoactive drugs. You have artemisinin, which is a sesquiterpene, actually. That's um, an anti-malaria drug. So, you, you know, you have terpenes that are uh, potent medicines and poisons. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and... Um, sort of looping back around to another part of our conversation, something I, I forgot to ask when you were talking about um, the testing that you were doing, um, a couple of a couple of different pieces to this, and hopefully I don't lose my train of thought and forget some of this, but I know some of the research um, that you and the, the groups that you were working with when you were studying the uh, vapor and smoke constituents, you were also looking at CB1 binding affinity too, weren't you? Yeah, I was just kind of curious if there were some other like highly potent compounds that were being formed uh, mm -hmm. in terms of that activity. But it was, you know, being an in vitro test. Right. It's not that specific. And, um, you know, there were quite a few other. I guess I was kind of interested. It's like there really anything to this. Is there different psychoactivity and different chemical profiles question? Um, but really something like that, you need, you know, that's more of a clinical kind of question um yeah and for for some of our listeners that are um you know not scientists um do you mind kind of explaining a little bit of like what is in vitro research and what are some of those limitations that you're alluding to um because you know sometimes i take for granted that a lot of people listening to me talk um haven't even heard the term in vitro so it might be good to sure. kind of elaborate on that 
Yeah, I mean, I guess this this gets into a larger point about, I think, some of the potential misconceptions people have about not just terpenes, but also cannabinoids and and really yep. any, a lot of things, if you think about it, um, in terms of yep. <laughs> how uh, people generally understand medicine and natural products, not just natural products, but, you know, pharmaceuticals and synthetic drugs and all that stuff. Um, but basically, yeah, I mean, when you're studying, like when you're doing drug development, you you tend to look for a certain kind of activity that the drug is like, well, let's just take THC as an example. THC interacts with yeah. the cannabinoid one receptor, which is mostly in your brain. And it also interacts with the cannabinoid two receptor, which is in the peripheral nervous system, as well as like immune cells. And, you know, there's, there's more to it than that, but um. You know, so like if you're looking for a compound that interacts with the CB1 receptor, you would start with mostly probably an in vitro assay. So that just basically means you have some kind of test tube that you have some kind of, uh, you know, you can put the receptor on a certain type of cell or there's all kinds of different ways of doing in vitro experiments. But right. Um, generally, you're looking for some kind of specific biological activity. So you either have a receptor in the tube that, and you can measure various ways of how compounds interact with it. Do they interact with it strongly? Do they interact with it mildly or at all? Um, and you know, you, you know, this also applies to cell, like, like if you're looking for an anti-cancer drug, you would normally start by growing cancer cells in like a Petri dish and then applying different compounds to it and seeing if they kill them. And right. you know, that's a big, you know, that's usually the starting point of a lot of this stuff. Um, or you have some plant that you already know has medicinal properties for like historical reasons, and then you go try to figure out why. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you know that's in vitro means like in a test tube, basically. Right. Um, and then as you move into an in vivo system, that would be in like a test organism, so a mouse or eventually a person if, if it's uh, you know clinical drug development. So yeah, like. A lot of times you see people like quoting things about different cannabinoids, different terpenes from kind of very basic in vitro kind of research. Like, oh, this terpene has anti-inflammatory properties in this <laughs> yeah, assay. Yeah. And then they just quote it as if that means they have anti-inflammatory properties in general. Um, and you, you can't, you know, that's, there's, a, there's a reason drug development is takes a long time and it's complicated because yep. you usually start with these very simple systems and move into much more complicated systems um like a person versus one cell or one receptor um but one interesting thing about plants and and plant medicine i guess is that there are a lot of compounds in a plant and even in a chemical you know ecology sense it's usually these things mm -hmm. aren't just one compound but like a plant might from an evolutionary perspective, make a lot of different compounds in the hopes that one will do something useful for it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Then be a shotgun effect. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then it'll be selected for. And there could be there are cases of certain compounds like being used in combination with other compounds to overcome something like resistance, <laughs> for example. A lot of times, like a bacteria might develop some kind of pump to pump out like some toxin that's being coming from another microorganism. And then the other microorganism will develop something to inhibit that pump. So the 
thing is still yeah. active. And, yeah. you, and you can learn a lot about, you know, drug development by studying these kind of things. Um, because, you know, when you think about antibiotic resistance or, um, you know, neurolog you know, a lot of different conditions probably have multiple targets that are useful to, uh, mm -hmm. to treat. Um, but, you know, drug development with more than one target, more than one drug is, you know, like exponentially more complicated than using one drug. So from a regulatory perspective, that, that, yep. you know, that gets complicated, but, um, you know, everyone, you know, of course, in the cannabis industry and other herbal drug kind of industries is always interested in these different concepts of synergy and stuff like that. But it's really, un, you know, this is understudied stuff and not necessarily true all the time. Yeah, I mean, um, what what pops in my head um, hearing that is I'm sure you've you've seen these charts that float around in uh, on social media and in dispensaries that'll list you know, all of these cannabinoids or and now all of these terpenes and then it yeah. lists all of these pharmacological effects and it has all these dots that, you know, implies that you can somehow, you know, find your chemical, find what you're trying to treat, then go find your cannabis product that has, you know, a lot of that compound in it and that's going to be clinically um, effective, which um, one of the things that people hear me rant on a about a lot is is you know that's just extremely misleading and a lot of the uh those charts are based the you know the data that they're uh, deriving everything from is usually in vitro work um because there hasn't been a ton of like truly like in human clinical research done you know in that sort of sophisticated way um to to make some of those claims yeah so yeah definitely absolutely um and yeah and then you know Essential oils and different terpenes have some kind of well-known medical uses. I mean, most, you know, they're not like super, you know, they're not like curing all kinds of crazy diseases, but they, you know, they're for topical antimicrobial stuff. Essential oils have a lot of different uses um, in some dentistry stuff. Menthol is obviously mm -hmm. used a lot. Uh, you know, vapor rubs for your lungs to help expand right, out right. your lungs or use. So th there are these kind of very kind of home remedy, not even home remedy, but like, over-the-counter and home remedy, yeah, I guess, is yeah. the word, kind of uses for these things. Um, but when it comes to a psychoactive drug like cannabis, um, you know, <laughs> you, you can't just infer those kind of, those kind of things. Because <laughs> really, the, the, the way to answer that question is, is kind of get to the point of why we kind of started doing this research in the first place, which is, you have this chemical, this complicated cocktail of chemicals yep. um, with, you know, some plants, you know, it's not obvious what the active ingredient is, even though you know it's having a certain effect. Mm -hmm. um, but um, so that you, in those cases, you kind of just got to like fingerprint it somehow to make sure it's going to mm -hmm. have the right kind of effects or have to study it clinically. But with like cannabis, you, you know, you have a couple active ingredients. THC being the main one, and then CBD being more important in high CBD strains. Um, but that's pretty much, you know, you know, and it, you know, like when you, if you, you know, as far as we know, um, everything else is the concentrations also matter. Right. Just because it's high in something doesn't mean it's going to have an effect necessarily. What, what does high mean, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So you're inhaling maybe less than a milligram <laughs> or something. 
Exactly. And you have biphasic effects and things. I mean, things do different things at different concentrations and finding that tipping point is challenging because there are all sorts of things influencing pharmacological responses, um, especially with a, uh, like a phytochemically diverse um, drug like cannabis, you know, you have all sorts of um, assistive and conflicting um, activities happening at, um, you know, you've got things that are causing allosteric responses on, on receptors that are, you know, slightly changing the shapes of receptors that are changing the way they react to compounds. You have things that are antagonizing other compounds. There's, there's just a, a lot of different things going on um, that make it a little a little challenging to to study and and yeah and to to infer um, responses to and I get a lot of questions sometimes just because of the space I'm in and and the work that I do a lot of people ask me you know what's oh gosh what's the best strain to take for X condition and I'm like you know that's kind of the wrong I, you know it's like that's impossible for multiple reasons that's that's an impossible question to answer one is you know like we starting out in this conversation talking about the concept of strain and how complicated that is um and and that you can have you can have cannabis uh varieties that are labeled the same strain that have different chemical profiles um you know beyond just the other complexities um that go into it and and that's not that's usually not a response that people like to hear no well yeah exactly cuz i mean there's a lot of marketing going on in this area um, you know, both in the semi-medical or legit medical kind of right. industry aspect of this, as well as the recreational side. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, the, back kind of like back to this co- question of in vitro versus in vivo kind of research. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, all these different interactions are sometimes only been studied in like a more of an in vitro setting. Like you take a lot of CBD, take a lot of THC, see how they play with each other in this receptor. But is that really what's happening in the body? Right. Uh, hard to say because they metabolize differently. And, you know, again, depends on the different ratios and how much of those ratios are actually getting to the place where you th- where, where, they, <laughs> yeah. where you think they might be going. So there's all those kind of things that are really hard to, to tease apart. But when you want to like look at a strain and say whether or not it's useful for a medical condition, this is why we kind of were really studying, especially in the Netherlands, this concept of like standardizing plant material for yes, clinical yeah. research. Yeah. So they, they really wanted it standardized for their medical program, but like some of the bigger goals of that whole project were to have plant material that you know is producing the same chemicals all the time, every harvest, every cycle. And you test that, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And then do clinical work with that strain compared to some other strain. And like this has been done a bit with THC and CBD. Right. Also in in some different drugs like Sativex from GW Pharmaceuticals, like a one-to-one THC, CBD mix. so yeah, besides like THC and CBD, which is still like limited in terms of what you can really say works better for what condition. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even a whole lot of work done on that. There's some, you know, and if you have multiple sclerosis, maybe you could give a recommendation mm-hmm. on, do you want to, you know, but it's also individual too. Right. Um, so like some people, maybe high THC is better for their condition. Maybe more CBD is better for them for psychological reasons, because it's like kind of blunting some of the... Mm-hmm the psychological effects of THC people don't like, you know, so there, there's, a, there's 
So that's really kind of all you can kind of say. And then when it comes to terpenes, it could all just be flavor preferences. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. it's like it's, you're administering a drug that's like changing people's mental like state. You, you To really be able to say whether or not it's working for something in particular, you need to like blind them almost to do, a, yes. yeah. do like a double blind trial. Mm-hmm. Where it's like you don't, you're like you have this one cultivar that has high THC, another cultivar, very similar THC content, totally different terpene profile. Is there a difference in effects or is it all just mm-hmm. psychological and suggestive? Right. Um, and when you get into like certain kinds of conditions, you know, those, those issues become even bigger when it's like a psychological condition. Somebody oh, yeah. It. Controlling for a placebo can be really difficult with cannabis yes. in general. And what, um, what are some of the complications with trying to standardize um, a cannabis variety for terpene content? Because obviously, um, when the plant produces terpenes, um, they're highly manipulated by environmental stresses and that sort of thing. Um, so can you speak to that a little bit? Like what does it take to actually standardize cannabis when you start, when you get beyond cannabinoids and you start thinking about terpenes? Yeah. Um, I mean, certain cultivars may not standardize easily, but from the talking with the people who I've collaborated with on this kind of stuff, generally you just kind of, kind of locked out a set of conditions that are just always, kind of mm-hmm. producing of course it's going to be some variation it's a plant right it's like not going to be like a pill um but yeah being mindful of how you how you dry the materials are really important yeah yeah um and as you know i, th- I think a lot of cultivars when they're grown to like their full like potential let's say so they're grown well yeah, ten, yeah. you know even if it's done by one grower versus another grower if they're the same genetics and they're both pretty much have everything they need to grow and reach their full potential, let's say, they tend to have a very similar terpene profile, as far as I can tell. Um, You know, there's, of course, like, it's good, like, I've never really done a really thorough head-to-head study where you have, like, one cultivar grown by multiple growers Mm -hmm. and seeing how close their terpene profile is. But just looking at kind of some of the studies I've done at the labs I've worked in in California was, was just looking at kind of like the pattern of the terpene profiles among different cultivars. And there clearly are these very distinct patterns. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't really seem to matter too much where it's coming from. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, of course there's like, there's a part I didn't, didn't know about like, like who's growing it, how are they growing it, indoor, outdoor. Right. You know, right a lot right. of that's questionable, but, um, there still seem to be these very distinct patterns. So I think when a plant has all the nutrients it needs, it's grown well, you're going to kind of see that full bouquet of terpenes, basically. Um, I definitely have seen cases where people gave us samples or whatever, and they're like, oh, it's this cultivar. And it clearly was not even close in terms of terpene (laughs) profile to that, to what is typically known to be that cultivar. And I couldn't tell if that was just because they had totally different genetics. Uh, they were totally making it up. I mean, I have no way of knowing. Or they just it didn't grow properly. Like, um, you know, I right. remember seeing this a lot with, like, people doing light deprivation in the early days. Of, like, when people really first started doing more light debt kind of stuff, which is growing basically kind of outdoors, but with, like, you deprive the plant of light so you can kind of har- grow all year round. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it, I noticed a lot of those like strains in the beginning just didn't seem to have the full terpene profile. Maybe it's, they were interrupted during the flowering cycle. Mm-hmm. So there probably are some environmental aspects of this, but I think from like a, 
like a qualitative perspective, the profile tends to be quite similar if you're really mm. getting expression of the, the overall terpene profile. Yeah. But like from a, and from, but from a quantitative perspective, you know, you basically need more resin to get more terpene. So like, you mm -hmm. know, if a plant or, you know, also environmental cues, like we don't know if insects or whatever, or like exactly, simulating yeah. certain things. <clears throat> but generally, like, you know, if you've got an OG Kush variety, for example, and it's grown indoor, outdoor, and it's all kind of the same overall lineage, you're going to see a similar profile with, with, with some differences in terms of the overall quality and some subtle stuff. It's, it's, like, it's like with wine or anything like that. Right, right. You yeah. Know, you know, differences. Yeah, and I think I think one issue that that kind of complicates the picture a little bit in the cannabis industry is that um, cultivators often uh, use strain names um, even when they're cultivating with seed and they're getting genetic variability, um, but they still continue to use the same strain name from wherever they collected that seed. And I think that probably throws a little bit of complication in there. Well, yeah, um, there's also we did a study on this in the Netherlands, or at least in one paper, uh, we had one of the cultivars grown from different seeds. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the stuff was cloned. Um, so it was the same genetics. Yeah. But, um, we also then took a couple, I think we did this with one strain and just did different seeds and saw if the, and the, and it, it was basically exactly what I said before. Qualitatively, it was the same. There's the same major mm -hmm. terpenes, you know, in, the, in sort of similar ratios, but quantitatively, they were a little different. So there was a bit more variability in the seed versus the right. clone, but it was still obvious it was that cultivar. But that doesn't mean that if you cross one strain with another strain, or even there right. isn't some yeah. kind of variability when you're inbreeding it, um, you know, anything could happen when you, when you cross one strain with another. I mean, yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. It could retain one profile completely and look totally different, or it could mm -hmm. have a hot, kind of a mix between both. Um, but you know, I guess, I guess we can talk a little bit about the different profiles if you want, but, um, yeah, let's just go straight into talking about, um, profiles as good as time as any. Yeah. I guess like the way I think about like profiles now in terms of what's interesting is like, again, I, I would like to see cannabis be classified a little bit better. Uh, I mean, strain names yeah, are fine. Yeah. If people want to use like a strain name, it's just like what do you, you, you know, like I like to use wine as an analogy because yeah. It's like a variety name. Yeah. yeah, you have you have well-known cultivars of grapes. Mm -hmm. And if they're grown in France versus California, they're going to have a slightly different profile. Yep. But still, obviously, it's that cultivar of grape. <clears throat> different farms have different names. They, you know, you know, wine is usually like the cultivar and the place it was grown. Right, exactly. Yeah. And the person who bottled it. Yeah, have a Pinot Noir yeah. in the Dundee Hills in Oregon. Exactly. Yeah. And like, it'd be nice to see, like, like there's like in California, like half of the genetics is probably some, some, something OG Kush. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, like it's, it's so, it's like the backbone of a lot of the genetics out here anyway. Yeah. Um, at least it used to be, but, um, so like, it doesn't, you know, it's like, and if some guy, you know, wants to call one Skywalker and one Tahoe and one this, like, you know, that's fine. But uh, overall, what the consumer should know, and when you start thinking about it, especially from the medical perspective, is like, what what's what's in it? And they don't need to know every terpene because the average person doesn't care right. about that and doesn't really know what that means. 
um, and doesn't really have to. It's like, if I want to get a kus strain, that's really all I care about. Like, <laughs> again, you can have this yep. one from this guy, this one from that grower <laughs> or whoever. Uh, and they, you know, but like, you still want to know it's that overall kind of type. And of course there are like subtleties between all these different types and stuff like that. But that's, you know, overall where I want this kind of classification to go. And part of that also involves not just terpene profile and not just cannabinoid profile. That's just the chemical type, but also yeah. the phenotype. Yeah. What does it look like? Uh, and then the genetics. I mean, really all this stuff links together to how you classify mm -hmm. any plant. Um, but as far as like the overall like terpene profile differences that you see in cannabis, at least what I've seen so far, and now what's being replicated in some other states, is you have a set of cultivars that dominate in a terpene called terpinaline. Mm -hmm. And these tend to be, there's some other terpenes that tend to go with that, like uh, alpha and beta philandrine. Um, Delta three carrying. So there's a few terpenes that tend to go with that overall profile and, and the strains that are like characteristic of this profile, like Jacarer, Trainwreck is another one. A lot of strains that are typically described as sativa or sativa dominant strains, cultivar okay. strains, whatever. Um, so yeah, they're basically dominant in ter terpinaline. And you have another, like kind of the opposite of that would be strains that are dominant in myrcene. Mm -hmm. And these are typically described as more indica type strains. Um, and there are some terpenes that tend to go along with myrcene, like uh, pineans tend to go with that. Um, some other, you know, there's some, you know, like then if you take, so like a lot of, yeah, so like I said, mentioned Jack Herrera, a lot of these like purple strains tend to be high myrcene content. And I'm just going off of what the buds look like. I, I don't really know yeah. what the plants look like most of the time. Um, but the, you know, some mercy dominant strains, there's, there's a lot of stereotypical examples of stuff like this. AK-47 would be like an older one. Mm -hmm. You know, all these purple, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Every kind of purple strain you can think of. A lot of them have high mercy content. Um, and then you have strains that tend to dominate in a terpene called beta caryophyllene mm -hmm. uh, or caryophyllene, however you want to pronounce it. Um, and those are characteristic of what, what was called like the cookie kind of strains. Okay. Um, cultivars. And beta that's an interesting compound too, because beta caryophyllene or caryophyllene, because uh, it interacts with the CB2 receptor quite specifically. So, yeah, you know, yeah. that, that could be an active compound, but again, is, are the levels high enough in the plant to matter clinically? I mean, who knows? That's totally different. Yep. issue that needs to be resolved if anybody feels like resolving it um which we should get back on that topic because there's a couple things i wanted to mention about that let me say that actually those things and i'll get back into the difficult yeah yeah, yeah we can spiral around no problem yeah, yeah there are um you know there since like the days of when i was doing this in the netherlands the, the, that company there that's that's still doing that kind of work is uh bedrocon mm -hmm. the name of the company but now there are a lot of other companies also or and research groups in israel in Australia kind of following this similar model where they really kind of standardize the plant material and then do clinical studies with it. Um, so that, that kind of research is happening in other countries. Um, it of course gets a little complicated in the sense of like how much money you're going to spend on good quality clinical research when you can't really patent your product. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yep. so that, that's, you know, another question about how to fund this kind of stuff in general. I mean, that's 
a much bigger question, really, in terms of how society views <laughs> views this, what to spend their resources on in terms of science. But um, anyway, so yeah, uh, back to the different kind of major profiles. Yeah, so you have the Mersing dominant, you have terpinaline dominant, uh, you have karyophylline dominant. And what's also kind of interesting about the karyophylline dominant strains, they also tend to have a lot of other sesquiterpenes. Uh, like humulene would be another I was, one. I was just going to ask about humulene since it's like technically the alpha uh, karyophylline or karyophylline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's different, two different uh, for, you know, variations on that compound. Um, but yeah, so you also then have... So like a lot of the terpenes I've been mentioning are hydrocarbons. So they're just carbon and, and hydrogen. Mm -hmm. um, they're not functionalized in any way um, besides like the rings that they form and the different, the different location of the double bonds. But um, you also, and like a lot of, like the hydrocarbon monoterpenes are produced by enzymes called um, terpene synthases. Mm -hmm. So terpene synthases are kind of interesting enzymes because so you, you know, they take basically geranial pyrophosphate and whatever, dimethyl something pyrophosphate, which are basically the isoprene units, and they put them mm -hmm. together. And then, then depending on the enzyme, they'll form different compounds. But the other interesting part about these enzymes is they tend to form more than one. They're not always that specific. Some of them are specific, but some of them are quite, you know, the, the kind of reaction that they catalyze causes a lot of side products. So yeah. yeah. From a genetic perspective, that's really interesting because um, you kind of see that pattern replicated in strains that are like similar to each other genetically. Whereas like it, it dominates in one terpene and then there are all these other minor ones, but the pattern of the minor ones is very similar until like it starts mm -hmm. getting quite different. And then you'll see that pattern shifting a little bit. So you also then have cultivars which have more functionalized terpenes. So terpenes with alcohol groups on them or you know, alcohol groups is the main way terpenes are altered. You know, there's yeah, another group right. of enzymes that then put alcohol groups on them. So those seem to be more active in other strains. Like OG Kush is a good example of this. They tend to have more hydroxylated monoterpenes. And that really gives it a distinct flavor and smell. And you also <laughs> then have some strains that seem to be, have more, instead of more hydroxylated monoterpenes, they tend to have more hydroxylated sesquiterpenes. So the, the enzymes are probably, again, a little different there yeah um and that you know i find that interesting yeah and just and for for listeners that aren't familiar with some of those like some of the uh monoterpenes that you'd be talking about would you be talking about like geraniol linalool um yeah linalool is a good example yeah um and then you know so og kush tends to have a lot more linalool um then you even have some other strains that we've seen that are totally dominant in linalool that's the main compound mm -hmm. Um, which is also interesting because now you have like a, a cultivar where the like whatever enzymes catalyze, you know, putting the hydroxyl group on is now really active in, in that, that strain. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess the reason I'm interested in kind of the, the enzymes that do this stuff is not just for cannabis, but other research I've done on other plants is really studying the enzymes that make terpenes. Yeah, yeah. Because from a biotechnology point of view, uh, terpenes have a lot of industrial applications. You know, mm -hmm. you mentioned rubber as one example. Uh, there are others. And, you know, obviously these high value, but very rare terpenes like taxol is a good example of this. Uh, you know, they're just, some compounds are just hard to make on a large scale. So if we understand these 
these genes, we can put them in mm -hmm. microorganisms, for example, and make industrial levels of these compounds. I mean, that's the idea. There's a lot of biotech right. research going on on those kind of things. And cannabis specifically has some pretty cool enzymes. One, because they, you know, cannabis makes a lot of trichomes, which mm -hmm. are where these compounds are produced. So just their kind of enzymatic machinery is is quite interesting and from yeah, and they're like bio biochemical factories. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. So if you could get, you know, that that that's to me is a really cool uh, area of research, actually. Not, you know, cannabis being a nice model organism, I think, because yeah. it makes a lot of trichomes. And not just, you know, THC is also part terpene, and a lot of the functional differences you see on certain cannabinoids, like there's two parts to a cannabinoid: there's the terpene yeah. part and what's called the polyketide part. Um, it's just a different how they're, you know, the different side groups are made, probably yeah. another group of natural products. Um, so cannabis was really, I mean, cannabinoids are really like a hybrid of a terpene and a polyketide. And a lot yeah. of the variation in, in the different cannabinoids comes from the terpene part or the polyketide part. Right, yeah, yeah. To produce cannabinoids, in, you know, which companies are now trying to do to, you know, produce pure ones for clinical work or whatever, uh, produce cannabinoids and yeast and stuff like that. That's you know these enzymes do cool stuff uh and you can get them to put different groups on different kinds of molecules so you know that kind of stuff i find interesting yeah totally and and you're touching on something that i was actually gonna get your comment on is you know um cannabinoids are to a large extent basically a type of terpenoid i mean they're often called marrow terpenoids because they're basically just these sort of modified um terpenoids um for the for the most part, and that was that was actually something I was going to ask you is would you consider a cannabinoid basically a a, a type of modified terpenoid essentially? I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm getting, maybe getting nitpicky on the chemical nomenclature stuff, but sure, um, yeah. Because the polyketide group uh, is so critical to a lot of their activity and their overall just structure. I don't know, like 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 like. There's some like like taxol again is, is a diterpene, so it's C20, right. yeah, terpene, but it's highly functionalized in the sense that it has all these amino acids, amino acid groups, and some other uh, phenolic kind of groups uh, on it. Yeah, but I would consider that a terpene in the sense that it's it's got this terpene core to it, and everything else gets put on the terpene core, whereas right, 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 this is more like a polyketide with a terpene getting put on it. <laughs> I gotcha, gotcha. That's a, well. That's a that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, way. yeah, yeah. I like that. Yep. Yeah, it might be just being picky biosynthetic nomenclature, but yeah. Anyway, no, I think I think that's good. Um, you know, I get I get really uptight about things like that sometimes too. And I, you know, what I tell people is, you know, we have to be picky about the vocabulary we use, otherwise our words start to become meaningless. <laughs> sure, so, but you know, here's an example of where I don't care. Like people are always like, "Is it a terpene or a terpenoid?" It's like. I don't really care what you want to call it, <laughs> but <laughs> technically a terpene is the hydrocarbon version. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And a terpene I was going to ask you about that one. too. Yep. These are also historical nomenclature because people first identify, that's how they first distinguish terpenes. So like, oh, these ones have oxygens on them. These ones don't. Mm -hmm. Is it like chemistry was simpler then? Right. Uh, you know, so I couldn't really tell the difference in the structure, but they were like, all right, these ones we know have oxygen. These ones that we know are hydrocarbons. So that's like where the yeah. historical kind of nomenclature comes from. But now the terms are really like in the scientific literature, they're used pretty much interchangeably. 
Right, right. Uh, I only really hear people in the cannabis industry kind of arguing about that, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, something else I wanted to make sure to talk to you about, just particularly, you know, because we've both been involved in um, testing labs and all of that. I wanted to get your impression about um, commonly commercial, commercially available terpene testing in the cannabis industry. Um, and, and this is something I don't actually have a lot of experience testing for terpenes. I've done a lot of cannabinoid testing and microbiological work and, you know, a little bit of pesticide work and stuff like that, but I actually don't have much um, hands-on experience with terpene testing. So I don't have much of an opinion about this, but uh, one of the common methods that a lot of cannabis labs are using to test for terpenes are um, usually the same method that they're using for solvent testing. So they're using mm -hmm. these mm -hmm. um, headspace uh, systems, basically heating up a sample and, sucking off the the gas that rises, you know, above the sample and testing that. And, um, I wanted to, and some listeners may not care at all about this, but just my analytical nerd inside of me wants to mm -hmm. talk to you about the differences between a headspace method and a liquid injection method. Um, considering that the headspace method is so common in, in these commercial laboratories, are there any issues with those headspace methods? Or is that biasing results in any way uh, or what are your thoughts on that uh yeah like yeah there's i could go on quite a bit about this as well and really with every aspect of cannabis testing and what, what i think is yeah. going on at the end of the overall uh and what it needs but um yeah go just for stick it. to terpenes headspace is historically a very common technique for analyzing essential oils and terpenes um and there are a lot of advantages to it mainly being that the sample prep is almost non-existent. You just put yeah. a little piece of plant material into a vial and the vial heats it up and the volatile compounds go into the air and you suck that into the machine. Yep. Um, and Headspace technology has gotten you know a lot better over the years. I mean, Headspaces, old Headspaces were literally you just took a vial and put it on a <laughs> on a hot plate and heated it up. And now they're way more sophisticated in terms of how they pressurize the vials and all these different kinds of things. So I have no real, I don't think, I think if you developed a good headspace method, you could probably get the same results you would using another technique. And the other most common technique being liquid injection, which means you take the plant material, extract out the terpenes or cannabinoids into the solvent, and then you inject a portion of that solvent into the instrument. Um, the, originally when I developed the method in the Netherlands, which is based on really a, a very, um, kind of common analytical, like, like people have built up databases of, of terpenes from many different mm -hmm. plants on certain types of GC columns. So kind of the column is the part of the GC that separates the molecules, um, before they go into the detector. Mm -hmm. Um. And so historically, this was done on, uh, you know, at least when capillary columns, which are very thin columns, became common. There's been a t the most terpene data, like in the literature of essential oils anyway, is on DB5 columns, which are really 5% phenyl polysiloxane column. Um, so you have a big database of the retention time. Like basically you have a database of how thousands of terpenes kind of behave in these columns. I've mm -hmm. got it here with me, a giant book of that. <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> so, and then, you know, like, um, this is useful because you don't always, 
need a standard always to kind of tell exactly which terpene you have, or at least if, right, right. I mean, you eventually need a standard to fully confirm the identity, but exactly, using databases yeah. like this, which have like the order that compounds come out, which you can then figure out like how far apart do they come out from each other. So if you know mm -hmm. one or two compounds, you can infer what some of the other ones might be, which you can then yeah. go confirm by getting a reference standard or something like that, or using a mass spec to help to help narrow it down. Um, so there are really two issues I see with terpene, three issues I see with terpene, four issues I see with terpene testing in cannabis. <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the quantitative methods that have been published are using liquid injection. So mm -hmm. extracting into a solvent and injecting into the instrument. Um, and this has really been done with plant material and you can get very similar results with extracts. Uh, mm -hmm. When it comes to analyzing other products, it's very difficult because the, some things don't, you know, the solvent becomes more of an issue and the, the ingredients in the different stuff become more of an issue because they can gunk up your injector and exactly. stuff like that. Yeah. That's why Headspace is nice. You can put anything in it and only the stuff with the vapor goes into the instrument. Right. So you basically save yourself on maintenance. So yeah, basically the only quantitative published methods are in liquid injection. Although that is, I'm starting, I've seen a few more papers lately of people doing kind of some more systematic headspace stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is something I'm actually looking into now. You know, the main focus of my lab is in cannabis. We, we have a permit and we're getting into that kind of stuff more. Um, so I'm kind of like studying the difference between those two things. Mm -hmm. We're looking into it, but uh, because I, I think, you know, headspace does have a lot of nice advantages. Um, but that being said, like a lot of what people are copying are like methods that you kind of like get from the companies that sell the columns and stuff like exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they don't, they're not going doing full validation. They're just doing enough to get you started. They'll call it validation. Um, some might. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, or like a laboratory will just say, oh, it's been validated because this company right, that yeah. sold it to me has a chromatogram on it and that's not the case <laughs> yeah um so yeah so like even the liquid injection methods you know probably you know they weren't valid they were validated to like academic standards they weren't validated necessarily yeah, to exactly. in industry standard but they can be um you just have to do that work in your laboratory under the conditions that you use mm -hmm. um and you know so i think headspace you know there might be some concern that you're not volatilizing all the sesquiterpenes um, right but maybe that's not a problem. It depends on the conditions you're using. So that's something I'm trying to figure out at the moment. The other big issue has to do with identification and quantification. Yep. yep. And, and the main issue there is because, as you mentioned, people want to use the same GC for the same you know, residual solvents and terpenes. Um, but to do that, you need to use a column which is more specific to the residual solvents. Um, and these are like this cyanopropyl polysiloxane columns mainly um so those compounds you know like the, again the nice part about having these giant databases is you know the order of the compounds <laughs> exactly but when yeah. you, you have a whole new column that isn't really traditionally used in the literature to study these compounds that you know you don't have that same elution order you don't have the, yeah. all that historical data to back it up <clears throat> so then identification becomes a lot more of an issue you have to really like have pure reference materials of each individual compound to see when they come off and hit the detector. Um, you know, it gets way more complicated. Um, 
And a lot of the mixes that you can buy and terpenes that are commercially available are missing some of the really important ones, especially mm -hmm. in the sesquiterpenes. Uh, there's, there are a bunch of unknown ones and ones that like are in the mix, but if you don't look at the like, so you buy a mix, it's got a bunch of terpenes in it, you run it on your GC, some of those terpenes are gonna overlap with other terpenes that you don't have a reference material for. Mm -hmm. Or both, you might, have, you might have two overlapping compounds that are in the same mix. And this is, you know, this is where it becomes more complicated to analyze something that has a lot of compounds in it, like an essential oil. Like you have to yeah, really yeah. pay attention to, is there potential for overlap of these compounds? Am I really seeing the right thing? Just because it's in a mix doesn't mean it's commonly in the plant either. There's some mm -hmm. compounds that yeah. they put in these mixes that are just like, they're not even really there. So it's like, why are they in these mixes? Um, uh, do you have any examples they, of those? I can't remember offhand. Some of, they've changed a bit these days, um, but yeah, so yeah. I can't give any specifics. But I do remember that being a little irritating. Yeah, um, yeah, totally. So and yeah, like it takes a while to build up a library of all these compounds and really identify them. And there are even some regulatory issues now, which are making or disincentivizing labs from looking at more terpenes, um, mm -hmm. at least in California. And I can give some examples of how that's working. Yeah, <laughs> please mean, do. Basically, like, so, like, when I built up, like, a kind of a thorough method using the, the traditional kind of columns, in the Netherlands, at least, like, we had a huge library of compounds, so, like, that was a big advantage. But then mm -hmm. when you're, you know, trying to source these things commercially, you have a lot less. So you do, like, if you want to, you can basically, like, if you use the different tools that you have, like a mass spec and the different, like, if you know that, like, Karyophyllene comes out here, mm -hmm. humulene comes out here, they're at this time, which is this time difference from what's in the database. You can kind of estimate where another compound will come out, and you can check the yeah. mass spec to see if it's most likely that compound. Mm -hmm. And if there's historical literature data also backing up, where you're, you can kind of tentatively, tentatively identify it, which some yeah. people yeah. doing R&D kind of research, like somebody trying to breed a new strain, or for example, might be interested in these kind of things. Um, so like there's an, an incentive, like, you know, if you have a customer who wants to do something like that as a laboratory to be able to kind of provide these tentative identifications, mm -hmm. you can make it clear, like these are tentative and, you know, these are the ones we're sure about. And you can even quantify compounds depending on the detector you're using, using like surrogate reference materials. So yeah, a lot yeah. of terpenes in a, what's called a flame ionization detector have a very similar response, at least if they have the same number of carbon and hydrogen in them. Exactly. Yeah. So you can like get a very like the basically yeah the, the response of the signal is very similar from one compound to the next depending on how close they are in structure. Mm -hmm. um, so you can also semi-quantitate them. But the way like regulations have been written, at least in the state of California, for every compound that you're analyzing, you you know you have to have the reference material for it, mm -hmm. and you have to have a standard curve for that specific compound, uh, <laughs> even if your detector has a similar response. And you have to always pass these QC samples in a very specific way. Not, and they're not taking the consideration that like, you know, for an assay that's like you're analyzing active ingredient, like THC, yes, you want it to be really tight assay. Mm -hmm. So you can really say this edible has 10 milligrams in it. Right. Yeah. When it comes to a terpene, it doesn't really matter that much. It can be a little bit, you don't have to be that accurate for every terpene. And basically like as a lab doing like stand, you know, the regulated testing, you have no incentive to do like, for like 50 compounds because it just makes your assay a lot harder to pass all the QCs mm -hmm. 
Whereas like from an R and D perspective, you want more compounds. So it's like, mm -hmm. but like from a, just a practical day-to-day -day operations perspective, like you want one method, you don't want all these different methods and all this yeah. different stuff. So they're kind of disincentivizing people from doing this kind of more R&D kind of stuff. By, yeah, investigative work. Yeah. yeah, by just having like too many sweeping regulations that don't necessarily take into consideration nuances where, where you'd want to know other things kind of. And don't uh, even necessarily provide value to the public or, you yeah. know. Well, and yeah, and, you know, I could talk a lot about how I feel about some of the regulatory systems that are being developed um, in terms of the testing and, you know, the problem. I mean, I think we're seeing a huge problem now with this whole vape issue. No lab yeah. tests for the ingredients that are probably causing this problem, except with right, the exception right. of some of the contaminants like pesticides or, or whatever. But all the other potential contaminants, I mean, to be fair, it's like, you can't just test for everything and looking for unknown right. stuff is way harder than looking for known stuff. Yeah. But it just kind of shows we have a very serious public health problem now. <laughs> just, just because of the way these systems are working. And, and, and to be fair, most of this problem is with black market products, most likely. Um, but well, at, they're, least, they're, at least so far as we understand it. Yeah. And they're, you know, yeah, exactly. And, um, but yeah, so that you know, there are some weird things like that going on in the terpene testing. But basically, overall, to your point, yes, I mean, I think you can make headspace work. I think you can make liquid injection work. You can probably make another method called SPME, solid phase micro extraction. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's a common way of analyzing volatile compounds, which would make sense in a grow room as well, because you can like store these little like absorbent materials in a room, right. all the volatiles there, and then you can study things like the cycle of the different volatiles. If you've been in a cannabis grow room, you know, like it kind of smells different at different times of the day sometimes. Yeah, yeah. That might matter in terms of the final profile when you harvest it. So there's all these little cool things you can do from an R&D perspective. Um, but yeah, the regulations have made it a little less, uh, you know, easy to do that kind of stuff. I mean, of course, somebody can pay you just for R&D work. And, right. And you can go that route, but, uh, you know, and then you got to get a lot more reference. You know, it just gets more complicated. Yeah, and 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 I think people often under <laughs> underestimate how much work it takes to do some of that R and D work. To, um, you yeah, know, it's a lot more work. Just to, <laughs> I mean, just in in academia in general, you know, we're always fighting for money to try to do investigative work, um, yeah. and it's it's a challenging thing. Um, and then you know, to your point with the testing regulations, you know, I'm here in Oregon, and you know, I look at California, and I'm like, well. You're testing for more things than Oregon is. So like from a public health and safety perspective, like that's nice yeah. <laughs> because there are a number of issues that only now, uh, you know, the government in Oregon is starting to recognize. Like one example I've been talking about in the context of the vaping issue and contaminants and extracts is in California. My understanding is that uh, when a lab has to test the extract in a vape pen, they have to test the extract after it's already been filled in the cartridge. Yes. Whereas in Oregon, you just test the extract, you know, in bulk before it goes yeah. into any packaging. So you're not yeah. going to catch things like leaching metals out of a, no. you know, a poorly manufactured cartridge or anything like that. And I don't think many people recognize these nuanced differences that affect public health and safety. They, to the public and to a lot of, you know, just producers, consumers broadly, they hear, oh, the product's tested, thus it's safe. Um, yeah, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I think this is like really bringing a lot of that, that nuance to the forefront of like, well, what does it mean 
that something's tested and what was it tested for? How was it sampled? You know, how all of these, these different components. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves over time. Yeah. I mean, that's something that occupies a lot of my time these days besides, you know, with some of the other work I'm doing, but, uh, yeah, because now what's happening, Kella, I mean, this is a whole other topic, but just the way the regulatory regimes are developing, um, there's so many little issues to work out <laughs> on the testing yeah. side. So, so many. I can talk a lot yeah. about that. But uh, but overall, it's a good thing to have products being tested for, at least for the main contaminants. That could be, a, you know, a concern, but there's so much. There's so much, there's, you know, and also you have to balance costs, you know, like what, yep, you know, you could, yep. you could just pass regulations and make things more and more complicated, but, you know, costs really start getting out of control. Um, but yeah, that's, this is, uh, yeah, I could go yeah. on for a while about that. Um, but yeah, yeah back yeah. to like terpenes and the testing field overall, I think two of the major things I'd like to see is more reference material. So really I'd like the standard companies to kind of pay attention to what's in the literature because there's a lot of literature actually already out there. Mm -hmm. And look for those compounds and put those ones in. Like it, it just would make this a lot easier and I think there'd be a market <laughs> yeah. for it. Um, yeah, I agree. Uh, so, you know, that would be, that'd be nice to see. And as well as like people start, like that's another thing I'm looking into is like, what is the difference between the traditional columns and the newer columns people are using? Can we make kind of, get some literature out there of at least some, some information out there of the different, you know, the, what to expect. Cause a lot of what you yeah, see in these, yeah. these, these white papers that come from companies are reference materials. Mm -hmm. They're not actually what you see when you run a sample. And that, that's, you know, of course that that's all marketing Very, on their end. Yeah. You know, they show the wonderful column that can separate all these terpenes, but then when you actually put it in a real sample, there's all these other terpenes. There <laughs> Matrix the effects. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's, you know, you'd like, I'd like to see a little more, uh, literature, you know, scientific peer-reviewed literature coming out on some of these newer techniques. Because I don't think everyone should just stifle and do everything the old way just because that's the way it's been done. Innovation is good. Yeah, you know, yeah, totally. Uh, in, the, in all kinds of science fields. So you don't want to stagnate too much in that regard either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one thing that that, that brings to mind is um, with uh, cannabinoid testing um, back in the day when labs were kind of just getting going. Um, I remember, and I, I talked about this in another interview too, but it, it just kind of makes me chuckle now thinking about, but so many labs prided themselves on passing um, proficiency tests that uh, were not in matrix that were just reference standards that you just injected neat onto a column and, you know, and just reported your results. And of course, a lot of labs not only passed, but, <laughs> you know, did really well. Um, and would use that as a, a marketing, you know, kind of gimmick, like look at my badge and look at how awesome we did. We've passed this test yeah. five years in a row. And um, it's like that, it's, I mean, to a consumer that that appears impressive, but to anyone working in the analytical field, it's like, well, yeah, I mean, when you when you get into the actual matrix, things things behave quite differently. And, you know, especially with all of these different cannabis products that exist on the market, yeah. um, you know, it's a complicated thing sometimes to understand the data that you're that you're realizing, especially when you get into infused product like edibles and topicals that have all sorts of um, different ingredients that make just the extraction process complicated. Um, you know, to try yeah. to not not kill your column. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. No, it gets matrix effect recovery out of the matrix becomes a huge mm -hmm. issue with all kinds of edible products and all these different weird formulations. Uh, 
Um, it's a huge issue, huge. And it's it's very hard for labs to develop good methods without good reference, bulk reference materials. Because if you want to see how much THC can come out of a chocolate bar, you need to put THC in chocolate-like matrices and see how much comes out. And you can't just go buy 100 milligrams of pure THC. Right. Because it's yep, uh, a controlled substance. So unless you have, a, even if you have a DA permit, you have to tell them why you want it. And, right. you know, they might not want you to do it for that reason, to help states with exactly. their regulatory systems. They don't care about that. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, that's something that I've wrestled with in, in some of my work. A lot of folks don't um, understand or appreciate that the reference materials that we have available to us for cannabinoids are so diluted compared to um, reference materials that you could get for you know, a lot of other things that are not controlled, you know, it's like the, the most potent reference standard you can get for cannabinoids is like what, like a thousand micrograms per mil. Um, yeah, which isn't and, a lot, which is that's not one, a lot. That's one in a milligram, which is <laughs> most edibles are a few milligrams. So if you're trying and they cost a couple hundred bucks, sometimes they use, so exactly you, you can't, you can't replicate the, the product you're trying to analyze with going that route right now. Uh, right. Whereas yeah. when we were we made the reference material and, and characterized exactly. it very thoroughly. And then we could do those recovery studies. And we did them in flour because that's all we were really cared about at the time. Yep. Uh, now it's like, it's really tough. So like, I think until federal law changes, um, state regulators should really kind of think about, is there a way we can allow people to produce these reference materials for mm -hmm. the labs, which we're requiring to use these reference materials right. as QC. Exactly. You know, so They've set up situations in California which are literally impossible to solve unless yeah. they change the rules or allow more things to happen. Um, and it's just, it's nutty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are is. a lot of good things about the system here, but uh, there, there are a few, like, analytical holes <laughs> that <laughs> need to be filled. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's, yeah, there, there are holes that not a lot of people um, even perceive or appreciate so it's something that you know it's good you know like we're having this discussion right now just trying to bring awareness um that some of these issues exist and need to be um looked into because they're they're not obvious to folks that aren't working in labs and analyzing stuff and understand you know some of those nuances and complications yeah, i guess what i find a little funny is the you know the fda has systems for this for so many different kinds of products and how yeah you should go and the kind of things that you're flexible about and the things that you're not flexible about. And it's just totally, it's a more of a science-based approach, whereas a lot of the states are just taking a kind of hard line, um, yeah. not science-based approach, just like a line in the sand, you have to do it this way without really considering the, the flaws in, in that approach. Well, and I don't know if it was like this in California, but in Oregon, I mean, when they were making the rules, they tended to turn for guidance. They tended to turn to people that were already operating in the cannabis space, doing testing, not people that were kind of in broader natural products or pharma uh, worlds that could provide um, maybe some other, you know, very different perspectives and um, ideas about how to construct um, some of those, those testing rules. And so, you know, some of these issues I feel like could have been caught earlier and could have been foreseen had some discussions happened with a broader, um, I guess, group of, uh, or, 
a broader group of people with a broader group of uh, expertise when it comes yeah. to analytical science um, to, yes, to talk those about. Are, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, there are societies that do this for all kinds of industries. Um, and, you know, I mean, to be fair to the states, you know, they have limited budgets, limited resources. And limited time. You know, limited time. And in California, it's like they almost listen too much to some mystery consultants. I don't know who they are. And not enough to some people in the industry. And, and you know, you also in the cannabis industry, and this gets back to some of the testing questions you had earlier. You have a lot of self-proclaimed experts who really, you know, you don't, you know, have they published in this field? Do they really have a background to be mm -hmm. saying the kind of things they're saying? Some people do, and you're seeing a lot more professional development yeah, coming into the space. I'm not like knocking yeah. anybody, but uh, you know, you did have a lot of kind of garage chemistry going on for a while. <laughs> And it was yeah. like really here. Um, so I can see why states kind of just threw a hammer down but they, and didn't listen to anybody. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you actually have some people who kind of know what they're talking about who can give you some advice on these things. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, big, it's, it's interesting. And it'll uh, keep people uh, busy for a while. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, to we've been going for almost an hour and a half now. I want to start to wrap this up, and I one of the final questions I wanted to ask you is just broadly, um, you know, what are what are some of your research interests that maybe extend beyond cannabis, and um, and and then coming back around, you know, we've already touched on it some, but what do you hope to see? in the future of some of this research, not just cannabis research, but terpenoid research in general. And, you know, we talked about enzymes and all of that, but, you know, um, yeah, where do your research interests extend cannabis and beyond and what do you hope to see from the future? Sure. I mean, yeah, right now I'm working more in, you know, pharmaceutical contract kind of analytical work, um, you know, also with cannabis too, um, you know, that's becoming more important for the company I work at, but uh, yeah. Um, you know, so that's keeping me busy now. Um, I have a lot of interest in biotech applications of terpenes, so different industrial applications or and medicinal applications of these compounds. Um, but that, you know, terpenes, I just, you know, I kind of just happened to stumble upon them when I was doing graduate mm -hmm. school work. Um, I'm interested in all kinds of different natural products, and there's a lot of exciting new things kind of going on in that field. You know, mainly yeah. as, you know, people are trying to produce more um, chemicals, you know, not from, for example, oil and petrochemicals as they're trying to replace those kind of industrial feedstocks and stuff like that. Um, terpenes kind of have a, some role to play there. Um, so, you know, all this biotech stuff, I, I'm always into that. That's kind of what, where I started kind of in, in science. Mm -hmm. Um and then, you know, drug development stuff is really interesting to me. I, I see the cannabis industry as it develops, splitting off more into recreational, being maybe a little bit less regulated, and mm -hmm. medicinal being a little bit more regulated. And yeah. it's kind of weird that we have states where medicinal is completely unregulated, but recreational is. I mean, you know, that's just <laughs> yep. Um and I think, you know, there are some other cannabinoids which have potential for being developed into drugs. Um, I think that's interesting. Um, I think as far as terpenes go with cannabis, I'm not really, I don't think they're like this hugely like biologically active compounds that like totally alter the effects, at least until someone proves to me otherwise. 
um, you know, maybe they matter, maybe they don't. But um, from a like just characterization point of view, I'd like to see that go more towards just really standardizing how we characterize these varieties. And and again, like you know, you're always going to have your individual cultivar names. I think that's fine. Something people can relate to. Mm -hmm. But really having more of like, okay, this, these fall under the OG Kush umbrella. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These fall under the OG umbrella. These are like this type of sativa. I think that's something people can understand where they don't really have to get into all this like detailed terpene chemistry, which most people just, you know, there's no reason for them to care about it. It's like, I like the way it smells. It tastes good. That's, that's really as far as it goes for some people, yep. um, which is fine. And, you know, medical patients, you know, they want more standardized material. And I think to get that is go through the medical routes that already exist mm -hmm. for drugs and not just drugs. We also have, you know, the FDA has approval processes for herbal, herbal drugs. There's only a couple mm -hmm. herbs that have gone through that process because it's, it's, you know, it's expensive. expensive. Yep. Uh, you know, so opening up avenues for, for that, I think, is also useful, you know, but that takes you know, a little bit of federal law changing, a lot of federal law changing. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of watching how, watching and taking part in how this develops, you know, from the scientific side, and and we'll see where it goes. I mean, more avenues for research would be great because I think a lot of these questions about safety and efficacy are academic questions, but they're also mm -hmm. they're also public health questions. Uh, yeah. As cannabis becomes more legal, more people are using. You know, not, not I wouldn't say more people are using it, but. Uh, because it's being like sanctioned, you, you kind of shouldn't I mean, really, they should, we should know more about it basically. Um, yeah. So academic research would be great in the U S because there's so many cool, so much good research going on in other countries and we're just not yeah, doing it here. Yeah. Yep. Law, the obstacles that are there. And I think it's stupid. Um, yep. The reason not to research something. So yeah, I'd like to see better characterization better quality research into the medical side of things and, you know, more, a bit more thoughtful approaches to how you regulate it from a public safety perspective. Like, like dealing with this vape issue is like one clear example of that. And another mm -hmm. clear example of that is, is, is definitely going to happen where now that states have like lists of pesticides that they're having labs test for, of course, you're going to have people who are going to go find pesticides that are on the right. list and yep. out of them. <laughs> Exactly. And there are ways of catching those people. You just have to occasionally do a very broad test. Mm -hmm. But who pays yep. for that? Like, because to test for 400 pesticides, there are tons, of, there are a lot of agricultural laboratories that could do that. But they're not, yeah. Yep. You know, but you're not necessarily doing it all the time. You know, like you, you, you can spot check things. And like, who pays for that? The state, the industries, taxes, you know, like these are all questions that have to be sorted out. And I think science can guide a lot of this stuff, but like, it, Regulators have to talk with scientists more. Sometimes you just want a university to do some research on like, hey, what's in all these products? Like to study the vapor, for example. Like when people are putting 10% terpene content in e-cigarettes, we can study that vapor and figure out if it's going to cause out, you know, potential allergens. Mm -hmm. Is it inflaming people's lungs? Like that's that's not hard to study. Yeah, it just you just have to do it and have to fund it. Exactly, yeah. and and these are the kind of things I'd like to see start happening more. Because it, it would cut through a lot of the kind of nonsense that's out there right now in the cannabis industry. I think a ton of it from all Yeah, a lot of the like crazy speculation that goes on because there isn't good data. So people are kind of able to say all sorts of things and get away with it. I see the I just yeah. see some crazy stuff, like weird formulations that's like 
like, why do you want to put cannabinoids in that? All you're doing is opening up all this, this <laughs> potential safety concerns where it's like, you can just put it in a very simple food ingredient and administer it. It pretty much works. Uh, right. And, and, yep. and like, and of course, like if you want to develop some novel formulation, because it really does something interesting, that's great. You know, but that, that becomes drug development, not stuff that should necessarily yeah. people should be guinea pigs for these companies products and that's what's happening now and the the vape issue yeah. is, is a great example of that like and you know i would like to see them it needs to be it's terrible what's happening in that regard i think yeah no i i think i'm i'm pretty well aligned with you on on all of that it's 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 you know it's kind of bizarre to behold um it's like there are aspects of it that are super fascinating, but it, you know, some of it's almost like a car wreck you can't look away from. Like it's, you know, sort of disgusting, but you have to like keep looking at it at the same time. Sure, yeah, <laughs> um, like, I, uh, you know, it's like people are probably, I mean, who knows what people are putting in some of this stuff and, and, or what, you know, from the poor manufacturing process of the, of the cartridge itself. I mean, who knows, but uh, I could offer a lot of opinions on what I think it might be, but um you know, you're, you're only going to figure this out by investigating. And unfortunately in the U S we have a habit of like going, solving problems after they happen. Exactly. There's a yep. big difference between doing cannabis research in the Netherlands versus the U S you know, when I was at university, that was totally different, but the right. approach of the government there was so different. They just, they just allowed you to do research and like, obviously had some controls, but like I remember a good kind of, a leave leave you with this anecdote was like you know when we were doing this essential oil research and terpene stuff one of the things we got approached to do by the dutch police was to they wanted they wanted to be able to identify what a grow smells like mm, so they mm -hmm. wanted us to get terpenes from a grow not not dried terpenes fresh terpenes so mm -hmm. they could literally make scratch and sniff cards and send them out to neighborhoods and be like this is what oh, a grow wow. smells like if you get it which I thought was kind of silly. I think most people know what weed smells like when it's growing, especially <laughs> where it's pretty common. But um, yeah. or at least, you know, everyone's smelled weed if you've been to any city and if you've been to Amsterdam and most Dutch people have. Uh, right. But, uh, yeah. but anyway, like, so they, you know, they just, I remember one day they just brought us garbage bag after garbage bag of cannabis they had seized from the legal grow and they were like, distill all this and give us the terpenes back. And the, the, the cop kind of joked, he's like, he's like, you know, don't lose all this. He like, this was a Friday afternoon. I was going home <laughs> and he like dropped off like tons of pounds and pounds and pounds, kilos and kilos and kilos of cannabis. And it's like, yeah, just lock it in here. You know, it's like when you do stuff like in the U.S., even if these, you know, the regulations are so tight, everything's on camera, everything yeah. is logged. They didn't log any of that. Nothing was on camera. We just locked it in the closet. It was no big deal. Yeah. <laughs> we had our permit to handle this stuff. Uh, it's kind of like the equivalent of a DEA permit, but um, it's just a different mindset. Everything isn't like hypersecurity and research was just more open. Like it wasn't a big deal. Uh, and I would just kind of like to see more of that be allowed with cannabis in the U S and like, it's, it's not that scary of a thing. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah. From a health perspective and all the impact on the brain and all that stuff. But well, and you know, it brings that brings up like my uh, my own anecdote to the the flip side of that. So I'm originally from yeah. Mississippi and and went yeah. to school at the University of Mississippi, and yeah. um, I spent some time I spent some time at the Coy Waller Complex there, where yeah. the NIDA Cannabis Lab is, and yeah. it, it was an interesting thing being there is 
you know, they had at the time that I was there, they were they weren't really doing outdoor grows. It was it was indoor grows, and uh, they were telling me that um, like, yeah, these are the plants that we have, and they looked really terrible. And I was like, what's what's going on with them? And they're like, well, they're they're root bound in their pots. And I said, well, can't you transplant them or <laughs> move them to a bigger pot? And they said, not without DEA approval. Yes, and, every little bit. <laughs> yeah, and I was blown away. I was like, you can't even just move the plants to a bigger pot? And they're like, nope. And they're like, and you see these cameras? They said, you know, they're theoretically, you know, we're being watched at any moment. And every little thing we do that involves handling uh, cannabis, you know, has to be approved. And um, that just blew me away. I mean, I knew it was very controlled, but I didn't realize to that extent that, like, you know, their plants would have to get root bound because they can't move them because they can't get DEA approval. It's like, that's just ridiculous. Um, yeah. This is why one reason, like that group has had the monopoly on research for a while. And they've done a lot of really good research. I mean, a lot of yeah, yeah. what you know, the chemical makeup of cannabis has come from that group. Um, it's just the time is really kind of, you know, they should really kind of, you know, there's a lot more we can do now. And there's a lot more people who can do that kind of work. And really there'll be no, you know, major societal <laughs> concerns. <laughs> yeah. The, I, mean, I heard stories of people like in that university, like with fishing rods, trying to like get the cannabis from the outdoor. <laughs> yeah. Outdoor yeah. Road. Yeah. So, that was a common story. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. In, like in California, if you're, you know, of age, you can just go to a store and buy it. Like, you know, you don't have to worry about it's... people robbing the university lab. It's not really an issue. Although we did have people take some of the plants in the Netherlands that we did have growing and then we had to stop growing it at the, at the, at the Institute. They, yeah. Somebody did the plants. It did happen. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember uh, just like a year, a year or so before, before I um, got introduced to the, the researchers there at that lab, I think they had like a grad student that tried to pocket some stuff that was working in that lab, you know, and the, um, they had a, a local arm of the DEA that was like waiting for him as he, uh, left his his shift you know and so you know yeah people you know there are always those people out there they're going to try to get away with stuff and try to steal stuff or whatever but um yeah but anyway um i greatly appreciate you being willing to spend at this point we've been going for almost an hour and 45 minutes i've really enjoyed our conversation um it's great to you know be able to talk to someone like you and um, especially when we happen to be uh, so aligned on so many things, and and yet we have very different, um, in some ways, very opposite experiences of of different things. Like I said, me growing up in Mississippi, and you doing work in the Netherlands and everything. It's 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 very interesting. Um, so polar opposites of perspectives <laughs> of what we've been involved in. But um, I appreciate you being willing to give up your time and um, and and talk through all of this stuff with me. I've, um, yeah, really appreciate it. And is there any, any last comments or anything, um, that you want to share before we sign off or, or are we uh, good? Well, I would first like to say thanks. I've, I've never done a podcast my first time. So hopefully oh, excellent. Well. well, that's, it's an honor to be here first. I, I didn't realize that. Um, and then I guess, yeah, so it was a good conversation. Thank you for that. And I guess the second thing I would ask is, um, where does one go about listening to your podcast? Cause I, uh, I'd like to check out maybe some of your other guests or whatever. Sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, the first season of the podcast is going to be released in, um, three or four weeks at the end of October. Okay. I'm finishing okay. on editing everything right now. So, um, 
you can check it out on it's on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. It's called the Curious About Cannabis Podcast. Um, there's also a website, CACpodcast.com, um, where stuff will be posted on there as well. It's still very much under construction, um, hustling to try to get all of this, um, stuff done. Um, but, um, usually what I recommend is if you, if you have Spotify or anything like that, um, just try to find the podcast there and subscribe and you'll get notified when, uh, the episodes start coming out, um, and there's also a YouTube channel uh, where I post uh, clips of the audio. And some of these podcasts, I do video when I can like meet with someone in person. Um, and so there's some clips kind of trickling through there. Oh. And um, yeah, so the first season will come out in a, in a few weeks. And um, from there, I'll kind of see what the response is and kind of figure out how to proceed. So this is, this is all new for me as well, um, um, as far as... Uh, producing all of this and I'm kind of a one man show. So I'm doing the interviews, doing the productions and getting everything published. And, uh, so it's been learning experience, but it's been really, really exciting. I've been able to, to talk with a lot of, um, a lot of good people with good knowledge to share like yourself. Um, it's been really fun for me. And I think it's, it's good to have more good resources on this. There's been like, a, I've noticed a proliferation of all kinds of stuff about cannabis, everything you ever wanted to know, and it's really hard to cut through what's good and what's what's a waste of time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, one of the uh, taglines for the podcast is it's kind of cheesy, but I say, you know, my what I'm attempting to do is to cut through the hype and the hearsay, yeah, and try to try to critically <laughs> explore these big topics about cannabis with, you know, folks that have. Um, you know, knowledge and unique perspectives um, to guide. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, some of the interviews I do, sometimes I get conflicting information too. And I think that's part of this process of trying to get these good conversations to happen and to share them. And, um, you know, what I like to think is that um, while I hope people learn a lot from hearing these conversations and then I'll be kind of constructing my own narratives and providing educational content too, from my perspective. But I also hope it's just going to stir other private conversations that people are ha are having. I hope it'll just kind of raise the, the level of, of the, of the, you know, of what we're talking about when we talk about cannabis and that the, you know, the overall consciousness of what people are thinking about and, and trying to explore is, is just kind of um, matures a little bit. That's, that's kind of what I hope to see if nothing else. Cool. Well, um, I uh, look forward to checking some of that out. So uh, thanks again. And Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. And um, stay in touch and um, let me know yeah. um, what's, what's going on in your world from time to time. Um, yeah, I'm trying to get some more publications out and stuff gradually. But yeah, it's different when you're working in industry than academia. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Likewise, I have there's. I mean, these are very, very simple, simple research papers that I've been trying to finish up for the past year. And I mean, they're not, I mean, they're, to me, they're, they're not even that interesting. <laughs> like if I were in an academic setting, I'd be able to spit them out um, so quickly, but yeah. it's been so hard being in private industry that I'm trying to finish up a, a couple now that um, hopefully I'll be able to start submitting. And I don't know, I say the next couple of months, that'll turn into six months. We'll see. <laughs> but anyway um thanks so much justin uh really appreciate it and um i'll catch up with you soon if you want to learn more about cannabis you can check out the curious about cannabis book available now on amazon.com and other online book retailers 
Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.